0: In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all 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 the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God So there are some ways that the Bible has been used in modern Evangelical Christianity. Some of these may be familiar to you. Some of them may be foreign. But they're out there. They're, they're out there. The gold mine approach. Right? Reading the Bible is a vast, cavernous, dark mine in which one occasionally stumbles upon a nugget of inspiration. Here it is. Doug, I've read through the Old Testament in a year. And I'm finally, I came across the gold nugget that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take. Hunting for wisdom, the gold mine approach. When I was with the church I was at before, we tried to get Nug.com because it was available in UGG because we always say that's a good Nug. That's a good Nug and we just want to post the Nugs. Here's a Nug, here's a Nug, which is probably cool, but there's that approach where you're hunting for the Nug. You're hunting for the deeper knowledge. You're hunting for that That one thing that's there, that nobody else sees. And so the result of that can be confusing reading, because you're reading the whole Bible and you're like, how does this all fit together? Secondly, there's the hero approach. Reading the Bible is a moral hall of fame that gives us one example after another of heroic spiritual giants to emulate the heroic approach, which I'm very guarded against. Mario's listening to the Action Bible, which actually is. Pretty amazing. But I listened for it. I listened for David was a man after God's own heart and never failed. You can be David too if you try hard enough. For four easy payments of 1999. That's the kind of you too can be David. There's that hero approach where we read the Bible and we're like, oh, if we just had more Davids, oh if we just had more Ezekiel's or Jeremiah's or Isaiah's or Peter's or Paul's forgetting that they came utterly broken to the throne of grace that they literally were the utmost examples of failure that God redeems and uses and so we can read that we want to follow their example we're we are addicted to following the example of somebody else and in that we characterize their complexity and we highlight their good moments forgo their bad moments and say you too can be this which is an impossible thing for somebody to accomplish because any good that person did as we read in scripture was by God's grace alone one of the most shocking things you read in the bible is when it says
1: righteous lot you're like wait what where did it... we missed
0: that part of the bible is that like, a, is that in a? did we miss a book? Righteous Lot, who escaped from the city, tried to throw his daughters to the crowd saying, hey, have sexual relations with them because I've got to do the hospitality thing and protect these angels. Yeah, yeah, rape them. Go ahead. And then left that night, his wife, looking back, his daughters ended up sleeping with him and uh, because they wanted a child. And now they were outcast and ostracized from society and God because there
1: was some ember of faith that he blew on. Not a lot. Because of the brokenness that God looked at, and he fanned into flame that desperate ember of hope in him that he would hope to something beyond himself. In the New Testament Scripture, For 2,000 years, God wrote righteous law. Yeah.
0: We really got to rethink how we read these stories. There's the rules approach. I think we come from churches who use this approach. Reading the Bible on the lookout for commands to obey, subtly to reinforce a sense of personal superiority. Brother struggles with this. I don't sisters struggles with this. I don't. Oh, if they were only more passionate for Jesus, if they really understood what he did for them at the cross, then they would really want to obey him. The rules approach, the subtle reinforcement of legalism, the pharisaic approach. It's attractive to some of us. It's attractive to me because I want to define myself. I literally want to hide my shame behind my fig leaves of faux spirituality. And if I can find somebody who's sown worse fig leaves than I have, oh, they are my focus. Oh Too bad about Jeremy. I read a book, and it's amazing. And I think you have Christus' exemplar, Christ our example. But it has to go hand in hand with Christ, our substitute. Christ our righteousness. So Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. But in the new life, he's also the pattern that he's making us into. So we get a forte. Sometimes the worst thing is I go into a McDonald's. I just did one. It was horrible. I told my boss I did a two week, I did a three week job in two weeks and there were no plans. I had no plans. I had to guess. I begged. I made phone calls and I'm like, I know there's something coming up. I was working nights and days. So we'd work from 12 at night till 5 in the morning and then from 5 in the morning till 11 and then come home and sleep and then do the same thing for two weeks and then some weekends. That's why I miss some weekends. And I wanted plans. I wanted to know what I was building and I could anticipate it. I could sense it. And then sure enough, the heads up came in and they said, oh, yeah, we need this. And I was like, I made the phone calls. Now we're a week behind. What are you doing us? Give me the plan. Show me what I'm building. And I can lean into that. And the beautiful thing about the life that Jesus lived from his birth, where he's like obedient to his parents, right? He submits to their authority to the point where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is he's giving us the pattern of a life that looks like him. He gives us this beautiful thing, but he doesn't say, go and do it because we are not that's why he had to come. If he just said, "Here's," he's every other religious leader who just comes and shows up and says, here's the way to get to heaven and find serenity and peace in your life. And then, you know, you go and you do it. You try really hard. don't no. He did what we couldn't to do through us what we could never do for ourselves. The beautiful promise of the resurrection is that the power of the resurrection is alive in you. The beautiful thing about the Christian gospel is that he doesn't abandon us to then make our way up Jacob's ladder to heaven, but that the story of the gospel is that Jesus came Jacob's ladder down to us
1: and he took what was supposed to be the wall that you fell against in desperation
0: called the law of Given at Sinai. Sinai was a mountain that you were not supposed to scale. It was a mountain that you said, I need somebody to go up for me. That's what Moses was. He was a prototype of the Jesus who would come to go up the mountain, who said, You blot me. Don't blot them out. You blot me. <laughs> and he was. That's, that's the amazing thing. He's, that's the best story. Like when you think about grace and the law is Moses nailed it for 39 years, 11 months. He like killed it. Perfect. Pretty good. He's blot me out of your book. And then at the end, he strikes the rock and Jesus and God's like, you can't go in. You failed.
1: Because that's the law. You miss once. But what does grace say? The beautiful thing about grace in the story of the gospel is he gets in. He shows up in the promised land, at the transfiguration, where the law said, you're out. Grace said, my son.
0: You can come visit the promised land, but you're probably going to want to go home. And and what does he do when he shows up? He's just... But what an incredible view of that law, that rule's approach. You miss once, you're gone. You miss once, you're gone. Pass or feel, so the result is despairing reading, and 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 it's reinforces and it's pharisaical reading, right? The artifact approach: reading the Bible as an ancient document about events in the Middle East a few thousand years ago that are irrelevant to my life today. Oh yeah, I believe that happened. Nothing impacts now. It's just history, and we can learn and glean some lessons from that. The result is bored reading, right? The guide to reading the Bible is a roadmap to tell me where to work, whom to marry, and what shampoo to use. Actually, this is more common than we think. We kind of laugh, but if you've been raised in the church, I think this is huge. I've told you the story where I washed my acne seven times to be cleansed, and it was like somebody took sand, a belt sander to my forehead. but didn't work. It's that kind of weird, like, these story, this weird reading of scripture where it's like this guidebook. And we've had friends who saw, who saw things on billboards and then read in her devotional that she was supposed to marry this person. And of course, it didn't work out. And she had this crisis of faith, which
1: we lost our friendship. And just because we're like, no, I, I don't think that's what God's telling you. But we hunt for these, like Gideon, who God came
0: gently and said, hey, you're pretty much a pagan. I'm going to incline myself in my grace to meet you in your weakness because you're so utterly weak. But we take that as like the hero. Oh, he put out a fleece. Oh, we can put out a fleece. Instead of this like immaculate act of God's grace, we put this fleece out to say, God, speak to me in some weird way other than He's spoken to you in the person of His. He's given you everything you need in life in the person of Jesus Christ. Every word that He says about be not being anxious. Every word that He says about Him valuing you more than the lilies of the field and the sparrows that fall. Every word that He's said about how no one's going to snatch you out of His hand. Every prayer that He prays is... Answered. If the Son of God is praying for you in John 17, every bit of it is sure and true. So everything you need has been given to you, but sometimes we hunt for these other ways because honestly, they're a way to go around God's hard sovereignty and his slow
1: time to spiritualize what you want for your life.
0: And that's just the truth of it. It is interesting, I think, especially when you're a young Christian or you're new to the faith, I think that, and I don't mean to put it in that framework like it's an immature thing because I still struggle with it, having been a Christian most of my life, but this sense that I have to find God's will. And then there's this pressure, there's this, I feel like a stop, I'm up against a wall, I'm like like i i feel like some, like i can't progress forward unless i get his will like i'm i am praying i'm seeking i'm reading scripture but i'm reading scripture in such a way where it makes something jump out at me
1: like it, it's this thing that it's man just do this and then you learn later on in life he just wants you He doesn't need your work. He doesn't need you to do great things for him because he's already done
0: the greatest thing. Anything good you do is going to be his grace anyway. He just wants you. But then I even think of Abraham because he didn't see it. He had one son and he was told that he was going to have more descendants than all the stars in the heavens. He just sees one. And then Ishmael, right, along the way, his own work. But there was that. There was so much trust in what God was doing there. But I think that there's this, there's like this pressure. I have to be right in this situation, in this circumstance. Cannot fail. And you know what? I think it comes from a good place. God is good. He's been good to me. I want to be good to him. I don't think it comes. Sometimes it may be. You start to get under your motivations and you're like, oh, I thought that was about you, God. That was all about me yikes but but honestly like even for me like at this point in my life I've always felt called to Stockton we've always felt called to Stockton our house is falling apart it's something new every week and we're like let's just move we need more space so many kids now we thought we were moving into a different transition in life and we're like oh wow I'm gonna be I'm gonna be like 65 when Nathaniel (laughs) graduates. that's crazy to think about
1: like I'm what and being so i just want to be where you are and i know that if that's my heart then you can bring a you can bring a whale to bring me back to
0: stockton even if i'm like i'm done like i'm so okay with not i was so paralyzed for so
1: many years honestly let me just okay i had a vision and that vision, it was the burden I carried that I had to fulfill, which makes success yours and failure devastating. Because you don't fail yourself or your spouse or your
0: family. You fail God. As if God has two plans. As if He has an A and a B and you can miss it. Beautiful thing about the sovereignty of God is you're always on plan A. No matter how much you zig and you zag and you go this way and you go this way, you look back and you're all,
1: oh, that was plan A! That was plan A. Jesus said, Good thing about visions, take my yoke upon you. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is easy. Jesus never gives you something that takes you away from himself.
0: The way the whole yoke worked is you were yoked to something else. And Jesus is saying, take my yoke, yoke yourself to me. Like, we're together. I'm doing the heavy lifting. I'm basically dragging you, Kaler. Like, I've got, I'm taking you all the way. Yoke yourself to me. But it's so easy to be absolutely paralyzed to where you don't even know up from down. Because you're going to do something for him. You're going to find that thing. And then you look and you go these places and you're like, confirm it. kind of thing. And he just keeps saying it time after time.
1: I saved you. I brought you out to bring I called you out to bring you into myself. The whole scheme, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you to fulfill
0: the Great Commission. Like, it's a joy to be able to be used by him, but he just, the whole point and every bit of health flows from the idea of him just bringing you in and you enjoying him because then it's a reaction that's out of the overflow of your heart to his goodness and his grace. It's not, I have to prove myself. I have to prove to God that I'm worth saving. I have to do this. I have to, I have to prove to others that I'm not a failure. I have to do this. I have to do... it's out of the overflow of your heart. You're like, oh my gosh, God, you're saving people.
1: You person? Well, if that was me, can I go with you? Can I go with you? Yeah, come. Let's love this person.
0: That's it. So I have one little intro I think we'll end on, and then I want us to all just study the passage where Jesus is tempted by Satan, the adversary, because we'll talk about it, because what does he say over and over? He uses the sword of the Spirit. It is written. One of my favorite stories obscure in the book of Acts is Paul. Paul uses the sword on himself. He is before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin says, or the high priest says something just just demeaning to Paul, and Paul reacts, and he's like, you whitewashed tomb, or whatever. And then one of the people standing by is, hey, did you, that's the high priest. You aren't supposed to speak against the Lord's anointed. And Paul literally quotes scripture to himself, and he uses the sword, and he says, oh yeah, it's written, you shall not speak. And he changes in that moment, because he uses the sword on his heart. The physical sword cuts through bone and flesh. The spiritual sword cuts through the heart. And so often cuts both ways. One more. So the guidebook approach is anxious reading. The doctrine approach. Reading the Bible is the theological repository to plunder for ammunition from my next debate at Starbucks. And I only write that because I've done that. And the result is cold reading. You're just looking for the, the ammunition. So this night had been a heavy one, right? It's the night of nights. And this is where we intro into this.
1: With their rabbi telling them that he would be leaving soon. But not to lose heart. Because he would return soon. Passover had been different. And there had been
0: talk at the table of one of their master's closest followers betraying him
1: the religious leaders. And they all asked, is it I? Which is beautiful humility. It's a good thing. He checked once again, the
0: sword strapped to the belt hidden underneath his coat as they sang a hymn. I love that part of the story. As they're walking through the Kidron Valley, they're coming down out of Jerusalem. They're walking into the valley where the brook Kedron was, and then walking up to the hill to Gethsemane, and it says they sang a hymn. So they're worshiping, they're praising, they're singing songs. Jesus is singing on the night of nights that he's going to be betrayed. Jesus is worshiping. Jesus is praising on that night as we talked about the Eucharist, giving thanks that he's breaking bread and giving thanks. Lord, thank you that I get to be broken for them. He checked once again the sword strapped to the belt hidden underneath his coat as they sang a hymn through the Kidron Valley and walked up the incline to the orchard of olive trees. Darkness laid over the land thicker than any normal night, and their rabbi had asked them to stay up and pray. But as so often, sleep won the battle, and each time the master woke them up, they would fall asleep again. And Jesus ended up saying, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. One of the greatest, hey, you really wanted to do this. There was a part of you that wanted to
1: do this. Good job. But the flesh was weak. But not only their voices as they were talking, as
0: they were arousing from their sleep. There were more voices than even the master's voice. Ten, a couple dozen, now many voices. A mob coming towards them carrying torches. As the mob moved closer to where they were, one toward the front leading the pack looked familiar, and as he came into the light of the torches, they realized it was Judas. Judas had brought a mob to halt and moved toward Jesus and leaned toward him and kissed him. And in Luke 22:49, and those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, "Lord!" Shall we strike with the
1: sword? They're ready. Palm branches, Palm Sunday. A physical deliverance, a physical sword,
0: a physical deliverance, a physical liberation, a physical freedom, violence, throwing off the opposition and oppression. In John 18, 10 to 11, then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And Jesus was saying, and they would soon realize, Peter, this isn't the sword dear to you. This one only brings death. To those it is used upon and to
1: those who use it. Those who live by the sword die by the sword soon peter soon you will get that heavenly blade that brings life where there
0: is death it was weeks later and they had been praying together even as their master and savior had prayed that night in the garden jesus had ascended they had watched him into heaven the angels showed up and were like it's gonna be a little while before he comes back you guys can go about fulfilling the great commission You guys can go wait and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. They're just like staring. He's, I'm going to come back the way you see me going.
1: And they're like, okay, we'll be here.
0: But now they're in the upper room and they're praying. It had been weeks since they watched him rise into the heavens and he had told them to wait, to wait for the promise that a helper would come. In the morning, as the day was starting, as the noise outside grew in intensity, as people made their way to the temple,
1: and as the roosters crowed, a noise inside the upper room began to grow. A sound like rushing wind, we're told. The promise the Holy
0: Spirit poured out. And people began to gather around because the crowd gathered outside the house, heard those who the Holy Spirit had come upon, praising God and declaring
1: His mighty works, each in their own language and dialect. That is the true miracle of
0: that special language that God poured out. Because what was he saying in that very first instance? It's not just for Jews. And it's not just for Galileans. It's not just for Nazarites. But it's for everybody. The gospel has come for everybody. Everybody is welcome. And that Jesus has come to meet you where you're at. You don't have to come and make a pilgrimage to where he is. He comes to meet you even in your own dialect. As Peter sees the crowd gather, something, we know the Holy Spirit, stirs in his heart, and this once coward reaches not for the cold steel he
1: wielded in the Garden of Gethsemane, but now for his Jerusalem blade, the devil-edged sword of the gospel. And he takes up the Word of God by the spirit of God, and he begins to
0: cut this way and that way, and how do we know it was a sword and a blade because acts two thirty six says Peter, preaching, let all the house of Israel, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified
1: now, when the they heard this, they were. Sadducees, commoners, fishermen, tradesmen, carpenters, bricklayers, stonemasons, moms, dads. Heard that. And 3,000 were saved and added to the church right there. Peter, like Moses at first, tried to deliver and liberate people through physical violence. Remember Moses struck down the Egyptian. He murdered them. He said, this is the way to liberation. And then he had to run for his life after he found out, after it was found
0: out what he did and hid for 40 years. He would one day discover God's word alone was more than enough to defeat Egypt. The physical sword pierces the body, but the word of God pierces the heart. The more that you use the physical sword, the duller it becomes, but using God's word only makes it sharper in our lives. Peter used the word of God, the power of God unto salvation, as Romans 1 says, is the gospel, the good news. That is the sword. See how this blade with one edge kills that physical sword. And then see how this blade, with one of its edges, the spiritual sword kills, but with the other edge brings life. Yes, it kills pride. It cleaves it in two from north to south. It kills bondage and enslavement and addiction. It cuts the mask of hypocrisy. It cuts open the palace's darts and the dens of iniquity and exposes them to the light. Oh, but it heals even as it wounds a life-giving sword. It sounds like a contradiction, but think of it like a scalpel, right? The scalpel causes pain to bring health. It brings new life, new hearts, promise, inheritance, eternal life there and here and transformation. How wonderful a weapon the sword
1: of the Spirit is, and we're commanded in our passage to take it up, to take it up. So, let me just end on, so we're going to
0: jump into how Jesus uses it, and we'll get into a little bit about what it is, its history, why we should trust it, but let me just rec- from from the Word of God itself, and this isn't Circular reasoning. it's 66 books written by different authors through <laughs> thousands of years who tell a singular story through different cultures, different phases, different histories, different technologies, and yet they all tell the same story of God coming to save rebellious men and women and to restore all things unto himself. It is truly phenomenal. So the word says, nothing is to be taken from it or added to it. Deuteronomy two that it's eternal Isaiah 48 1 Peter 125
1: that it's effective
0: Isaiah 5511 that it's pure Psalm 126 and 11940 that it's perfect Psalm 197 that it's precious Psalm 1910 a life guide Psalm 119105 soul food Jeremiah 156 a fire and a hammer Jeremiah 2329 that it's true Psalm 119, 160, that it's helpful, Proverbs 6, 23, that it's flawless, Proverbs 35, to be obeyed, Luke 8, 21, and James 1, 22. all we need to know, to know God, Luke 16, 29, and 31, the standard by which all teaching is to be tested, Acts 17, 11, faith building, Romans 10, 17, for everyone, Romans 6, 20, or 16, 26, sin cleansing, Ephesians 5.26 and James 1.21. The sword for spiritual battle, Ephesians 6.17. The very words of God, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16. Life changing, Hebrews 4.12. Life giving, James 1.18. Spiritual nourishing, 1 Peter 2.2. Saint equipping, 2 Timothy 3.17. So, you got like a pretty good, hey, this is important that we should know it. But as important as it is, in all those ways that we can read the Word of God, more importantly is that the Word of God reads us and that we know who the Word is. Scripture says every
1: jot, it seems like hyperbole, every tittle, just the little mark, the little dot on the I, that the volume of the book is written of Jesus who would come and rescue. You think of the story a Lot, Righteous Lot. And Abraham prayed and used Lot's righteousness
0: to try to say, you should save him. Remember the story. God comes to him and he's, and Abraham's, God tells him, Jesus, Supreme Court He's got angels with him. And he's like, hey, these angels are going to go off because they're going to see to the destruction of this city. And Abraham says,
1: if there's 50 righteous, Will you leave destruction? Will you hold on? Like, yeah, for 50 righteous. And Abraham thinks a bit, and he's like, how about
0: 45 righteous? I think he's doing math on how many relatives Lot has.
1: Did his daughters get married? I forget. And he gets them down to 10. For ten righteous. Yeah, for 10. We'll withhold judgment. But judgment came. What Abraham should have done and what we all should do is not go to the 10 or the 50 or the 45 or the 35 or the 20, but the one righteous. The only way a lot was righteous was because of the one. And the wonder of the gospel is that the unrighteous gets to go outside the city. And the righteous one stays in it and let the fire fall. The only way a lot, righteous lot, could be was for righteous Jesus to take all that unrighteousness. To take the fire. You guys, from beginning
0: to end, the Bible is about Jesus. The volume of the book. The signs, and that's why I love Leviticus. We should go through Leviticus. Leviticus, I can't even say it. Like, like the temples, the sacrifices, the feasts. The, every rule, everything is a symbol pointing to the greater reality. In fact, Hebrews, as Tom was saying, we should go through Hebrews. He says like all these things were signs and symbols pointing to the reality that Christ is. The way you read the Bible that transforms you is that Jesus is the hero. David's not the hero of the story. David fails, but that there's a greater David who comes along and says, guess what? I'll face off against the giant Goliath of Satan, sin, and death, and my victory will become your victory just like it was in David's. Like, all along the way, he is the hero. He is the rescuer. He is the one to which everything pointed to. And the sword of the Spirit is sharp when it's about Jesus It is something else that the enemy uses because you'll see in the temptation of Jesus
1: or the testing of Jesus that Satan quotes Scripture. And guess what? I've heard a whole lot of sermons like he quotes it. So
0: it's not just a matter of knowing the method or the Scripture, but we have to know the message of Scripture, that it's all about Jesus, and he has to be the hermeneutic Through who we see everything and everything through, like the whole Old Testament is okay. You want a king now? Cool. Okay, you want it? You want me to lead you in the wilderness? Oh, you need a physical representation and a cloud and a fire, by cool. Okay, you need like all it is God trying to meet where people's standard is, and then the whole story is about man that
1: standard. We're just not we're not hitting it where God intends, and that He comes. And he saves us. Like, you read the prophets. Ephraim didn't even know how to walk. Isn't that your testimony? Like here, I'm raised in this family with the spiritual heritage. I don't even know how to walk. So I picked you up. And I drew you with my cords of kindness. I taught you how to walk. Kindness, I
0: drew you by my, my everlasting light. Like this story of Jesus rescuing, the story of Peter transformed like from someone who used the sword of violence and then used the sword for the rest of his life, the sword of the Spirit, to transform and to change the world. We so often think if we have the right person in power, then the world will be a better place. But over and over as you read scripture, we learn that Jesus is the only thing. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the only one that can bring peace where there is divisiveness and a lack of reconciliation. And I'm sorry, it doesn't happen through violence. It doesn't happen through power. It happens through weakness, and it happens through the good news of Jesus Christ. And it happens through us following him in that message as we have enemy love, as we bear one another's burdens, mm-hmm. as we follow him into loving the unlovable because he loved us. That's what changes the world. That's what transforms I forget who the king was who asked for more years on his life because he was a good king and people were like that is a good prayer yes reelect him he's 80 something but re-elect and then he had the most wicked son in the history of the kingdom in that inner remaining years so like even that yes extend that goodness it still fail the extension of the best of our human people who represent us they still fall short it's it, and his kingdom is totally different and operates in a
1: different way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... I uh, hear word, Lord. We thank you that you took the sword into your heart. It's crazy the vision we get in Revelation where it says
0: the sword's coming out of your mouth. It's just every word you say is actually the sword. I pray we would,
1: like, let that hit us. That (laughs) that when you say, I say unto you, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute." That is the sword coming out of your mouth. We're so quick to battle in this realm. We're sorry for that, Jesus. We're so quick to physical solution that involve the realm of men and the small little power they wield. Lord may we strap to us the message the good news that Jesus wins, but that he does it through overcoming evil with good. that He takes something like the cross, the worst event in the history of mankind, and makes it into the best moment, the transformative moment, the pivotal moment in our history. And so, Lord, sharpen these swords. May we not just look to use them on others, but may we use them on our heart, ourselves, like James says. And may you just be glorified, because when we see you as the hero, it's exciting reading.
0: It's insightful. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. It's supernatural. It's worshipful. It's uh, adoring. It's thanks, full of thanksgiving. Every verse, pregnant with thanksgiving, waiting
1: for eyes to read it and it to give birth into our souls. So. We thank you. Bless this time. Thank you that, Lord, you took the sword into your heart, the sword of justice that we deserved. Because there was a sword. There was destruction. There was condemnation. There was separation. And you took it into your heart. So that we might just know your peace. We love you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for conquering Satan's death. Thank you that you're our future and it's secure. We love you and we praise you. And remember, your body broken and your blood shed. Thank you, Jesus.